0: Support for Paradox comes from the Timothy Center, a place for adolescent and family healing. The Timothy Center is a marriage and family counseling facility in Austin, Texas, offering distance consultations for those that live outside the Austin area. If your family is struggling and you'd like to consult with Jimmy, Josh, or one of their trained professionals, visit them at timothycenter.com.
1: I think that's hard for kids. I really do, because they think that then if that's not right, well, then they're just this really bad person. Yes. And we always try to explain to our kids that it's not necessarily that they're a bad person. It's that they don't know Jesus.
0: Recording live from Austin, Texas, a conversation about marriage and family that guys won't want to turn off. Dr. Jimmy Myers and Dr.
2: Josh Myers are a paradox. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. We are happy and excited to have Jamie Ivey on with us today. Thank you for joining us. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Jamie is a blogger, podcaster, adoption advocate, wife, and mother of four. You are busy.
1: That does sound like a lot, doesn't it?
2: <laughs> and I hear yeah. that you are also a, are a defeater of Joel Olstein. Can you tell us oh, about Oh,
1: my goodness. <laughs> funny you should bring that up. Um, I don't know if I should add that to my list of accomplishments <laughs> Repertoire. or not. yeah, exactly. Yeah, a couple <laughs> of weeks ago, you know, I had the podcast The Happy Hour, and you guys know full well that iTunes is kind of wonky with how they do their ratings and all kinds of stuff. But yes. there was a day a couple of months ago when The Happy Hour was at the number one spot on the Faith and Religion podcast, and Joel Osteen was right behind me. So oh, that's
0: fantastic.
1: Yeah. so it was a it was a fun day. There have been many times I've been close to him, and so it was fun to see my show above his. And you know, I don't what? know why that's fun to us? But
0: I bet he still had a smile on his face and a very perky attitude.
1: I'm sure he doesn't even <laughs> he, know. let be real. He, <laughs> he, he doesn't. You know now, he has a podcast. Uh, I'm sure.
0: Now, speaking of your podcast, the Happy Hour. um, you know anyone that's listened to it, it's just it just absolutely hits the perfect tone as you sit down with friends and you discuss issues that are so common, uh, you know, among all your listeners. We personally want to thank you because you know our our goal really is to find ways in which to to bring guys into this discussion. Um, you know, women always beat us to the relational punch, and so. We saw your 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 happy hour uh, concept, and so we went. Well, it's perfect. We'll have happy hours and just have an open bar.
2: I that's even better. And then all
0: the guys (laughs) would come. So we're gonna. We thank you in advance for that for that idea. Um, Tell us the. Can
1: I come as well, though?
0: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. The door's always open. What was the what germinated in your mind to do this? Um, because it's not an easy or necessarily an inexpensive undertaking to get a the, you know to get a podcast up and running. Uh, where did this thought come from?
1: Well, I a couple of years ago had ventured into the radio world. About five years ago, I, by a long string series of events, won a contest and landed myself on a morning radio show here in Austin. And so I found myself one Friday like a you know, stay-at-home mom, and the next Monday I'm on air you know, at 6 a.m. Yes. And that was this kind of crazy, weird journey that we went on, and I was only there for a couple months, but it kind of sparked something inside of me. This, I enjoyed um, having a voice in this kind of sense. I loved chatting with people. I loved hearing their stories. And so a couple of years later, I was a guest on a show of a friend of mine, and afterwards I just remember thinking, I think I could actually do that. And so I decided to start a happy hour podcast, and it was just kind of like this whim. I didn't know how long it would last. And this May, I'm I'm at two years now. You know, I've released, as the day that we're recording this, I've released um, about 88 episodes. Wow. And, uh, well, 90, including I have some other ones as well that are kind of on Fridays. And so it's just been this fun thing. It's a great outlet. I love having conversation with women. And I think my listeners are really enjoying feeling like they're part of the conversation as well.
0: Well, absolutely. And I was going to ask you, what does it feel like to have like 100,000 people consider you their best friend?
1: Oh, gosh. When you say it like that, it feels a little daunting. Um, you know, I meet people all the time. Just last night, my husband were at the movies, and this woman um, said, hey, I listened to your podcast. Um, the other day I was in the doctor's office, and the guy was like, hey, my wife listens to your show. And you know what? They feel weird, but I love it because I do it because I want people to listen. I mean, it would be dumb if I said I want to do a show and don't want anyone to listen. But I like it because I feel like I'm accomplishing what I want to accomplish, accomplished, and I want people to listen and feel at home and feel welcomed and feel a part of something. And so I think it's kind of cool that the happy hour is accomplishing that.
0: Oh, man, absolutely. Uh, and anyone that listens knows that adoption is a topic that's very close to your heart. I was just reading, um, and I wanted you to speak to it, a couple of days ago, a journal article that was published. Because, uh, you know, there's this rumor that transracial adoptions, you know, were going to be in some way bad for the child. And yet this journal, this research that has been done was was confirming the fact that there was absolutely no harm done to a child for uh, in a transracial adoption. Could you speak to that and your experience with that very thing?
1: You know, I feel like that I haven't heard that argument in a long time, maybe because of the circles that I run in. Um, But I can hear how some people might say that that might be detrimental to the child. Um, but I think I would just counter that with the way that we raise our kids is um, in our family. I can speak for the IVs. That's all I can speak for. But the way that we raise our kids is we have different races represented in our family. Um, and we don't shy away from talking about that. We are not colorblind. Um, we very much see our children's color of their skin. And we're very proud of it and trying to raise them to be very proud of it. Um, at the end of the day, I think that the way that you raise your kids and the way that they are in a family um, Is so much more than skin color. And so to kind of say that because the skin colors don't match, it's going to be detrimental. I can think of 8,000 other things I could do um, to hurt my children in parenting um, than be white. I just, the argument for me is that our parenting is way deeper than the color of our skin. And, and you know, we could go into like the other side of the argument with culture and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know what? Some of that's valid. Like some of that is valid that we can't bring any that much Haitian culture to our children than if they were living in Haiti. Um, But we can do a lot more, and the alternative to them not living with us is to not have parents. And so for us, we seemed as though it was a better option for them um, to live with white parents who don't speak Creole or make the best beans and rice in the world but try really hard to make good beans and rice in the world um, than the alternative to have no family. Um, So I I, I hear the argument. Um, I don't necessarily agree with it. Yeah,
0: Yeah, it seems like a no-brainer um how would you say that the the view of the church as it as it pertains to adoption how has that changed over the last say 20 years because there seems to be much more of an emphasis placed on it today
1: um i mean it's changed drastically since Aaron, I've been married 15 years and people ask us all the time, did you always know you want to adopt? And the answer is no, we did not get married and each have this fairy tale idea of, you know, adopting. Uh, it wasn't not until we were around people that were adopting and our church, uh, was the, was the place that we were first exposed to that. Um, I would say that, I'm happy that the Church is stepping up to the plate um, because the alternative is for um, the state or the government to continue to carry that burden. For example, in our church here, um uh, we have several families who work uh, in foster with foster care. And so I'm happy that the Church is stepping up to that. I think that the idea of adoption, um, has been brought to the light in so many people's eyes, and I think that has happened over the past couple of years. Now, I want to counter that and say that I think also we can swing too far and we can glorify um, adoption, which it is not um, a fairy tale by any means, and we can also um, start to feel as though the American world is the best case for every child to live, which i that's a whole nother discussion, but yeah. I just don't believe that either.
2: Yeah, so we have we have certainly a scriptural mandate to take care of orphans. Uh, we don't really have a scriptural mandate to go build houses for Habitat for your Humanity, but that, of course, is a great service. Um, but we have a scriptural mandate to take care of orphans. For those families that um, don't necessarily feel called towards adoption, in what ways have you seen people still be able to fulfill that scriptural mandate?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's fabulous because I think that the— the problem that we can get into, which is when the pendulum swings too far, is to say that if you're a believer, then you should adopt, and that's just not truth. Um, but I think that there are there are so many other ways that you can help. I mean, I love working with organizations that are working for orphan prevention, um, building sustainable um, income in countries to where women and father, men and women, mom and dads can work and keep their children, um, because there's no death and there's no sickness. They just don't have a job, and so there are some ways that we can do orphan prevention, which is a great way to actually prevent their from being more orphans. There are tons of organizations here in the U.S. that um, supply food and money um, to other countries, and then you know what? We think right here in our right here in our own um, country, in our own backyards, you know, working with Big Brothers Big Sisters, working along um, programs in churches to help um, women um, continue to to work and continue to care for their kids. I mean. Man, we're working with a with a young guy who's going to training to get his GED dropped out of you know school at 15. And and I always just think that, like, he has he has no family. He has no living family. Um, and so people coming alongside people like that to prevent the cycle from continuing. I think that's a big thing we can do here in the States.
2: Absolutely. Um So you don't have, with an adoptive child, you don't have that nine months in utero uh, as far as their attachment to them is concerned. How have you made attachment to your adopted kids a priority? Um, And if there were anything specific uh, that you did, what are those?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's true. And even with our son that we adopted domestically, we were actually at his birth, but we can't negate the fact that we missed the first nine months of his life. Um, And then our other kids, my daughter Story came home at 23 months and my daughter Amos came home at the age of four and my son Amos came home at the age of four and a half. So um, with Deacon, who was a newborn, we did everything that you would normally do with a newborn. And so I think that helped our attachment tremendously. My daughter Story was you know, a month shy of two. And although she wasn't drinking a bottle anymore where she lived in Haiti, we put her back on the bottle. You know, we put her back on the bottle and we gave her her milk that way so that we could hold her and rock her um, every night and every morning in the middle of the day. And that was just a way that we could kind of redo what we missed um, in her life and kind of help that attachment between the two of us. Uh, my son Amos was four and a half. It's a little bit different. I'm not going to put him back on a bottle by any means, um, but a lot of just like one-on-one time during that first year, those first couple of months for sure. When our kids first came home, we like locked down the house. I mean, we're like, you don't get to touch my kid. You don't get to look at my kid. Yeah, all
2: me. Only. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, it's all me. And so we we were really, really, really strict about that. And I always tell adoptive fam- families as they're walking into that and they look at me like I'm crazy. But I'm like, really, you really need to think about just like locking down, getting no extracurricular. People bring food. They like hand it to you at the door and run. Um because I always say my son, when he first came home, he didn't understand the relationship that we he didn't understand the mom and son relationship and had someone given him a better offer, he would have gone. You know, he didn't even know. Yeah. yep, yep so yep. you know, we did stuff like that in the beginning.
2: So as a Gen Xer slash millennial parent, uh, it seemed like in the 60s and 70s that kind of the church was faced with sex and drugs. Um, in the 80s, 90s, it was kind of homosexuality. Now it's, it's gender issues are in the news a lot without asking you to get political at all. Um, just how as a, as a Christian mother, as a Christian family, how are you guys purposely teaching your kids to love and yet stand up for, for truth and whatever that truth is mm-hmm. for your family?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is, it's such a good question for families to, to think through because I think it's difficult because on one hand, I want my kids, um, to love and I want them to know the truth. And I think sometimes we think we have to pick one and, um, and I don't think that's true, but I think, I think picking one is easy. (laughs) I think choosing both is where it becomes difficult. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, you know, I'll give you, I'll answer your question. I'll give you an example, too, of something that happened a couple of years ago. One of my sons, one of his great friends, um, had some friends who were um, of another religion than us, not Christianity. And so it's one of his best friends, and he comes home, and he's been given their their book. I don't, I don't want to call it a Bible, but you know what I mean. So he's been given their um, – what would I call that? Another their, book. Another book. There we go. Um, I'm like, I don't want to like all of the Bible. It's not. So, yeah. and, and for us, it was a great time for us to have a conversation with him about what his friends believe, but how we don't believe that's the truth, but how it doesn't right. change any relationship that he has with that friend.
0: Absolutely.
1: And so we haven't. We haven't encountered the exact um gender stuff so far in our family, but it's just around the corner. But I foresee what we how we would handle this is this that we would always call our kids to continue to love their friends. And we would never ask them to not be friends with someone, ever. Um unless it was, you know, inhibiting their maybe relationship with us or their relationship Mm -hmm. with, with God. And then we would step in and intervene, but we would want them to love them. But for us, we would also be very, very honest with our kids about the truth. And the truth would be is that God loves them, but he, but what they're doing is not under what God says is right for us and is okay and is God's plan for his children. Right. And so I think that we would just continue to impress that upon them. And I think that's hard for kids. I really do, because they think that then if that's not right, well, then they're just this really bad person. Yes. And we always try to explain to our kids that it's not necessarily that they're a bad person, it's that they don't know Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so they don't know the truth. And then when we when we are exposed to the truth and we know the truth and we've seen the truth, then when we commit bad sins or whatever, we have forgiveness and we have repentance. And so we can't ask our friends that don't know Jesus to look like they know Jesus. Well, exactly. Um, And so that's kind of how we hope to address those situations now. Ask me in three years when we're dealing with this again, (laughs) and I'll be calling you and saying, what do I do? But that's kind of how I hope we go
0: about it. We'll let you pre-book into the Timothy Center. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. We'll give you a group discount. (laughs) Thank Uh, you. But not only are you kind of coming against culture, but when the church seems as though for years have been putting out the doctrine that if you don't condemn something, you're condoning it. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, it's like, you know, our kids, our families are getting it from both sides mm. uh, that, you know, the idea is it really is a both. And. Um you know, you can love somebody uh, and still hold to a very strong biblical truth. Uh, it's so
1: true. I mean, I, I, I haven't experiences with my children, but I serve every week in the local jail here at uh, the county jail here where I live. And I feel like that with the women in there is that um, we love them dearly, like dearly. We are for them. We want them to succeed. But we would never like sugarcoat and say that what something that they are dealing with or any reason that might have gotten them was okay. Like still standing on the truth and still showing them love.
0: So I mean, I'm just sitting there thinking, how can I judge somebody just because they happen to be sinning differently than I am? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. But,
1: yeah. All right. One more thing. Especially if they don't know the Lord. I'm sorry. Like I said, I'm always like, we cannot hold them to the same standard. We pray for them that they would see the light. But if there's no, if they haven't seen a light, then we can't expect them to look like
0: light. Yep. Um, One thing before we get out of here, we also know that that date nights are a big deal with you. And Mm -hmm. since Josh and I both do marriage therapy, you know, date nights have almost become a cliche. However, Mm. they're critically important. So I Mm -hmm. wanted to ask you, the best date night you've ever been on.
1: Oh my gosh, ever been ever. on? Ever. The best date night. Sometimes we're pretty, I wish that I could say that we have like these, you know, exciting, like we go roller skating and then we Hot go. On air
0: balloons? Hot air yeah
1: like we haven't done anything like that but some of my best dates with Aaron um, I would say are in different cities like when we're traveling because I love traveling with him um, but right here in Austin where we live some of our best na- date nights are just at like our place um we used to, where we, we just moved recently so we don't have a place yet but we used to have a place we went to called contigo and we were just it's almost like cheers the bar like you just show up and you feel at home and for us Those were really great date nights because it felt like the expectation of the best date night in the world was kind of lowered. And it was just like we feel at home here. Um, And so that's what we love is just going to places that we feel comfortable because date nights for us now are like, hey, let's talk. (laughs) Like we're so busy. Let's let's talk and figure (laughs) out what's going on in our world this week and next week. And how are you? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, this is awesome that you're doing that in your life. And, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. It gets different when you have four kids that
2: are older. Jamie thank you so much for being on the show
1: you guys are awesome thank you
2: you can find more about Jamie at jamieivy.com her twitter is jamie underscore ivy instagram is jamie ivy and then of course her podcast is the happy hour with jamie ivy
0: and uh jamie if you do see this 56 year old chubby guy crashing one of your happy hours you'll know who it is
1: (laughs) you're welcome you can come on over thank you thank you so much Thank you
0: guys. Next time on paradox.
1: And then about seven ish months into the abuse, when they started to bring their friends and it became more, um, I decided I had to tell someone. So I told my babysitter and the babysitter said to me, I'll tell your mom. And so I thought, okay, it's over. My mom's going to know and it's going to be done. So the next day I go to the babysitter's house and those boys take me out again.
0: Paradox is produced by Billy Lee Myers, Jr. and researched by Dr. Jimmy and Dr. Josh Myers. Special thanks to Life Austin Church in Austin, Texas, and our Paradox Evangelist, Julie lyles Carr. To find out more about the Paradox and to sign up for email updates, go to our website, paradoxpodcast.com.